and Ziploc that Right on my waistline is why I kept that strap I remember nights, I didn't remember nights I damn near went crazy, I had to get it right Now I'm your favorite rapper's favorite rapper Hey, Now I'm your favorite trapper's favorite trapper The absolute truth, yeah, no joke Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Trap Draw Podcast. My name is Randy. Great to have you joining us today. Today's episode is getting back to some of my my absolute favorite opportunities, and that is an interview with the journalist and author, Jeff Wallach. Jeff has written for, oh gosh, a, a number of different publications in his career. He currently lives out in Portland, Oregon, and the reason for my chat with him today, he has recently published his first novel. It's called Mr. Wizard, and he'll, he'll explain it much better than I can, but it, it's not a golf book, but it's a book that golf plays uh, a big part of in its, uh, in its plot. So I thought it a great opportunity to talk to Jeff, avid golfer, uh, and just tons and tons of experience writing and, and in, the, in the publishing industry. So... Very much look forward to this conversation. I hope you enjoy. Before we do get to that interview, I want to thank our sponsor today, and that is Pinehurst Golf Resort, Pinehurst, North Carolina. You can go to their website right now, pinehurst.com. They have a number of really good packages for if you're planning a trip this summer or fall. They have the Donald Ross Golf Package, which is their most popular. includes uh, staying two nights, playing three legendary courses, their summer tea golf package is probably their most popular, and that gets you a third night and a fourth round free. And then we, I also want to mention we have our own event, the Donnybrook, that will be happening in October at Pinehurst, I believe October 7th through 10th, and that will involve uh, three days, two nights, playing number two, number four, and then the cradle short course, and then also Thistledew, which is their really, really fun uh, putting, 18-hole putting course. That's a great time. No matter where you are, if you're planning that golf trip this summer, and hopefully you are, I would urge you to consider Pinehurst. Uh, the only other course you've seen it profiled on Tour of Sauce that I have played is number three, and I can't recommend that one enough, especially if you're going to Pinehurst and playing number two. I think number three is the perfect warm-up it was designed by Donald Ross as well. It's a little bit shorter. It's a great walk, but the green complexes, the slopes are every bit as challenging as, as what you'll find, in my opinion, uh, on number two. So that would be my personal recommendation. Either way, please check out Pinehurst.com, Pinehurst Golf Resorts, and thank them very much for sponsoring the Trap Draw. And now on to my conversation with Jeff Wallach. Hey. Mr. Jeff Wallach. Good morning where you are. Uh, thanks for joining me. How are you today? I'm doing great. I'm happy to be with you. You are in Portland, Oregon. Is that correct? I am. And how long have you lived out in Portland? Oh, it's been probably close to 30 years. I think this is the year that it becomes half my life. <laughs> wow. Because I know you grew up on the opposite coast, correct? Are, are you a Long yeah. Island kid? I grew up in Long Island, went to school back east, and then uh, escaped out here to Portland uh, back before it was cool. <laughs> and now I, I look like, uh, you know, I knew what I was doing. It, what part of, uh, if you don't mind me asking, what part of Portland are you in? I'm in southeast Portland, inner southeast. Okay. Uh, the Buckman neighborhood, if that means anything to you. Hawthorne. Sure, sure. Uh, well, we were fortunate enough, we got to spend a little bit of time in Portland last August for as part yeah. of our, our tourist sauce expedition and uh, great city. I, I love the city. It's I've, I've only been twice now, um, but each time it's like, man, this is just a perfect mixture of it, it's so green. I, I love the neighborhoods, the downtown, you know, obviously. I, and let me ask you about that. How? Yeah. How, how do we square? I, I think there's a perception of downtown going on, what we see in the national news, some of the uh, protests and um, issues with with homeless folks. What's you're on the ground there. What's is this much different than Portland always is or what's what's the story out there now? I, I think the media has skewed what the experience here is really like. I mean, most people in Portland live here because of the neighborhoods. 
mm-hmm. and not a lot of people live downtown. Downtown tends to be a business district and a shopping district. Although obviously the you know condos are sprouting up like storm drains everywhere, but most of the stuff that has gone on politically has been in the downtown area. I'm I'm probably about a mile or a mile and a half away from that. And, you know, we've seen very little of it out in the neighborhoods. Life goes on like it always has um, in these areas where there's 100 and 125-year-old homes, beautiful old craftsmen neighborhoods, leafy streets. And, um, you know, yeah, there's been a, a, a homeless issue this year, but I, I would say that for the most part uh, it's been exaggerated in the media and, Life has gone on as it has for the past 30 years here, mostly. Um, so people shouldn't be scared away. What are your favorite places to play out in, in Portland? Uh, you know, I like um, a lot of the old school courses. Uh, East Moreland, which was a Chandler Egan course built, uh, I believe, in the 1920s, um, is a favorite of mine. It's one of those courses where you look at it on paper and you think, oh, I'm going to I'm going to kill it here. And then you get out there and you're like, it's going to kill me here. (laughs) Um, You know, crown greens. uh, It's basically an arboretum. I think there's like 150 different types of trees. And, uh, you know, we like to play in the winter when there's no leaves on them and it's much easier Uh, in the summer. You know, it's, it's an adventure. Um, We play a lot at pumpkin Ridge, you know, one of the great modern courses probably in the whole country um, you know, hosted USGA uh, amateur championships, the women's open. So that's great. We play at uh, two courses by uh, the architect, Robert Trent Jones Jr. out at Heron Lakes. Um, it's just, it's a great golf town. It's, uh, it's still underpriced compared to a lot of places in this country. So my buddies and I, you know, we always talk about, oh, should we join a club? There's some great private clubs here. But there's so much good public golf that that just keeps us busy all year long. Yeah. I didn't get a chance to play East Moreland, uh, but that was one of the courses. My, my partners, Tron and DJ, I believe, both played it and were just blown away by the value of the course. And uh, the other big thing was how, how tight it was, how, how those yeah. trees really creep in and, and can make for some uncomfortable shots. Right. You look at, you look at the scorecard and you're thinking, oh, we're going to play this at 6,200 yards. I'm going to just have the greatest round of my life. And then you hit shots to some of these greens and you watch the ball land and you think, oh, that's a great shot. And then you look back like maybe 10 seconds later and it's still rolling further and further from the pin. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, yeah. Uh, Gosh, Oregon. We we had so much fun in Oregon, not just Portland, uh, but but exploring all around Oregon. It's it's such a fantastic uh, golf destination for folks. Um, yeah, your show your show made it look great. Um, I watched it. I watched you guys in Bend and down at Bandon, and um, you know you really brought out how fun it is here, especially when you get in the car and you know you throw a couple of coolers in the back and you hit the road. I mean, there is some stuff here. There's a few I'm not even going to tell you about because, uh, you know, we don't want to get there and find out that suddenly it's full of people from, you know, wherever we have our little secrets. But there's some great stuff here. Of course. Of course. I don't blame you. Maybe off 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 uh, off the record. Maybe I we'll can get a couple record, of those. Exactly. Yeah. From you. Um well, hey, one of the one of the big reasons I wanted to talk to you today, I had the opportunity, the pleasure to pick up your new book called Mr. Wizard. Um, I, I want to I want to assume most listeners have not read it. So I you know, it always puts the conversation in a bit of a, a tricky place where I, I don't want to give away any of the the major plot points or, you know, make sure folks w- want to pick up the book. But let me ask you this. I mean, I can tell people, obviously, this is, uh, you know, we, we joke the trap draw is is somewhat of a golf podcast, uh, but golf plays a big role in this. And talk to me about your motivation for writing it, maybe the genesis for the idea um, that, that ultimately became Mr. Wizard. Yeah, so I like to say this is not a golf book, but it's a book with golf in it. And, you know, golf plays a major role in terms of, the relationships between some of these characters. And I think like a lot of uh, men in the world who learned the game from their fathers, there's a real bond between fathers and sons and brothers. And 
in this particular book, there's also a woman uh, golf champion who plays uh, a major role in the book. The, the idea for the book started not with golf at all. Um, uh, you know, back when I was about 50, I was talking to my mother one day and she dropped uh, something into the conversation where she said something, but oh, you, you know, and you love golf because of your Scottish heritage. And I'm like, my what? <laughs> you know, I'm 50 years old. I've never heard anybody in my family ever talk about Scottish heritage. And she's like, yeah, you know, your great grandfather, the Scottish, the Scottish guy. I'm like, <laughs> what are you talking about? So I went out and had a DNA test done. Um, you know, one of, one of the off the shelf, where you spit in the vial and you mail it off and they tell you where your, uh, where your DNA came from. Sure enough, it comes back. I'm 12% Scottish. Huh. And I thought that's a great story. And it turns out that a lot of people who take these tests get some surprises. Some are welcome, some not so welcome. That became the basis of the book. Although in the book, the character discovers that he's part Irish. Um, I had spent probably more time in Ireland than Scotland. I felt the Irish lent themselves more to comedy than the Scots who are a little more buttoned up and maybe a little more understated. I hope no one will take, uh, <laughs> find an insult in that. That's not how it's meant. Um, and so I took that same thing and that became the start of the story. One of the people who uh, is revealed later on in the book happens to be a golf pro from a family of golfers in Ireland. So the book goes from New York, where the main characters are born, uh, and follows this sort of genetic treasure hunt where two brothers are looking for who their real father is. And the plot takes them to Ireland, and much of the second half of the book takes place in and around golf courses and golf clubs in Ireland. Now, did is is the golf club? Is it a fictional golf club? I, I from my research, I believe it is, but I, I'm curious if if you kind of yeah. modeled it after if you if you had one in mind, uh, more so than than another. I won't tell you which one, but um, Irish golf aficionados will recognize some parts of the golf course that are described. Okay. So yes, I did have one in particular in mind, and then. I kind of stole aspects of other Irish courses that I've played over the years. But I mean, the name of the course, Ballydroit, is made up. Uh, it's actually a Gaelic word that means um, land of the wizard. So that, there's actually uh, a Gaelic word for wizard. And so I named the town um, after the title of the book. What went into that decision? I mean, pardon, this might be a dumb question. Could you have used a real golf club if, if you wanted to? It's a, it's a great question, and it gets at exactly what my experience was. Having written nonfiction, you know, writing travel and, and golf stories for magazines over the years where I would go somewhere, I would play the course, I would talk to people, play with the pro, et cetera, and everything is fact-based to fiction. So if I had used a real course in the novel, I would have to have gotten all of the details exactly right. So by making up a course that doesn't exist, now I have the freedom to, to use any details I want from a real course, but make the rest of the stuff up. I, I see. I see. No, that, that makes sense. And that actually, you know, when, when I was doing a little bit of research about your writing career, um, I came across an interview you had given, and I, I'm going to get the exact quote wrong, I'm sure, but but you had said uh, something to, to that effect exactly, where you, all, all of your nonfiction work, it you have to be precise, you have to get all the information correct, you know, th there's not much room for, I don't know, for lack of a better word, creativity. I was struck by, you've considered yourself, though, a, a novelist, a fiction writer this whole time, although this is your first novel. I, I, was, I was quite taken by, I, I, I'm not doing the quote justice, maybe you remember that exact quote, but um, that, that stood out to me. I, I know the gist of the quote is that, um, you know, in, uh, in writing nonfiction, um, you know, all, all the stuff is laid out for you. You don't have to, you don't have to invent the material, which is both easier but in some ways sometimes less fun so in fiction you get to make up anything you want you get to make up the quotes you know i would do interviews with architects or tour players or you know other dignitaries in golf 
and you'd ask a question and you have an idea of the answer you want, but you don't always get it right. Sometimes you do, yeah. but in other, in, in other instances, you don't get the quote or, or somebody says something and you could see how that quote could have been a little better, but you don't get to change it because that's what they said. And if you're a journalist, you pretty much have to report what they said, but then you move into the realm of fiction and now you could take some of those same things and make them come out the way you wanted them to come out because you know you could have made them sound a little better. Did, did it surprise you in any way with how difficult the, the process was um, with, with writing fiction? Well, I hate to say this, but it was in some ways, well, in some ways it was the easiest thing I ever wrote <laughs> because it was so fun. Okay. Not to say that writing for magazines wasn't fun because often it was, but it was also often a grind. And especially as, you know, the magazines changed from the beginning of my career to the end of my career. When I started, you could get an assignment from a magazine that was, you know, 3,000 words or 3,500 words, and you were given quite a bit of leeway to. Uh, add flavor to a story and, you know, kind of flex your writing muscles. By the end of my career, the stories would be more likely to be 800 words or 1,200 words, and half of those words would be little boxes of service with web addresses and phone numbers and, you know, here's my four-star rating and, you know, don't miss the haggis at, the, at, at North Barracks, um, you know, bar and stuff like that. And you were, you were providing service to people who might actually go to these places, but you were really less of a, of a writer. Um, and so the fiction takes you all the way back to the other extreme where it's all about flexing your, your writing muscles and making stuff up that's fun and that's poignant. And um, so the first draft of this novel, and I'm actually right now I'm, finishing a sequel to it. Each of the books took about six months to write in first draft. And they were, it was the most fun I've ever had writing. And I've had some pretty fun assignments over the years. After that, then you start to drill down and, and kind of grind it out because I probably wrote, I don't know, 13 or 14 drafts of this book. So that's when the hard work happens and you're like, okay, I had some fun. Now, now I gotta, now I gotta get down to work. So yeah, it's an interesting process. And, and I mean, every part of it is different. Mm -hmm. I, I'm not sure if that answered your question. Or uh, not. No, no, it does. It does. And, and I really want to drill down in, into the process of writing if, if you'll allow me. Um, yes. but, but before we get there, I, I want to just ask, do you have a brother? What, what other little nuggets from this book uh, are, are true in your life? Yeah, that's also a really good question. So I do have a brother. And in fact, in the first draft of the book, one of the brother characters happens to have the same name as my brother. And I think for me, it was just kind of shorthand when I was writing the book. You know, sometimes you create something that you know you're going to go back and kind of fill it in or correct it later. So for me, it was easy to use my brother's name, even though the character is not my brother. But I was smart enough to, to realize before we went to press, I should probably run this by my brother. Because <laughs> uh, everyone who knows us will go, oh, it, that's his name. That must be him. When in fact, in my mind, it wasn't him at all. So I sent the manuscript to my brother to read, and he had a fit. You know, he's like, I can't believe you made that character me. And I'm like, that's not you at all. You know, in my mind, this character, and, and also, it's the best character in the book to, to me. You know, the brother, Spencer, mm -hmm. the one who my brother thought was him. So we had a long discussion about the fact that, oh, this character happened to go to school in the same place my actual brother did. So I stole some things from his life, just like I stole things from my own life and gave them to characters. But that doesn't mean that those characters are those people. Okay. And so, you know, we had a, a, I mean, and I had to employ his wife to read the book and, and weigh in on what she thought. And she's like, no, that's not him at all. 
even though they, they share some things that happened to them in their life. So I, I, I got out of that one at the last moment, avoiding catastrophe. Well, and you anticipated my next, what my next question was going to be, which was, you know, the, the two brothers, you mentioned Spencer being, being the one brother and, and the other is named Philip, which, uh, happens to be my name. I, I thought that was a good choice by you. Uh, but, but they're, they're, they're opposites in their personality. You know, Philip is very studious and, you know, kind of buttoned up and, and by the book, he's a rules follower. And then Spencer's carefree and, um, very creative. And, uh, I, I was curious, it sounds like though, they're, they're amalgamations maybe of, of you and, and other people, you know, cause I, that was going to be my question was which, which brother is, is right. more modeled off of you. <laughs> Yeah, a lot of people have asked me that, and and I never answer it directly because there there is no answer. I mean, yeah, both of the brothers have stuff from me and from my my brother and from friends that we grew up with. And, you know, you, you have to draw on your own experiences, but that doesn't mean they all have to go to the same character. So. I wanted to make the brothers very different people, especially because this is the book about DNA in some ways. And one of the main questions I mean to raise in the book is who are we as people and how did we get that way? Mm-hmm. Did we get that way because something was passed on to us genetically that we had no control over whatsoever? And, you know, Spencer got his irreverent nature and Philip inherited his more studious nature from different parents or are we the way we are because of the way we we were raised and the two brothers obviously were raised together very closely so the question for me is what makes us who we are and and that's what the brothers relationship ultimately explores in the book yeah um i you know classic nature versus nurture which you know is is brought up in the book um well without giving a Yes, yeah, sorry, Can go I ahead. Can I say one more thing on that? And so the sequel of the book is addresses a similar question, but it's going to ask more about how, where you're from influences who you become. And that's part of the same equation, but in the first book, it's, it's less about a location and the impact that a location has on you. And in the next book, that's going to be more at the forefront. Hmm. Very interesting. Uh, is there a timeline on the seat? Not, not to, not to put undue pressure on you, but, but just curious, uh, would that be sometime in, in 2022 maybe? I think that might be a stretch. I'm going to finish the first draft. I'm going to go back and it'll probably take a year of revisions. And then after that, then you get into the horrible business of publishing, um, (laughs) which, you know, if there's a worse business to be in, I haven't come across it yet. Uh, so that so the whole issue of am I going to find an agent? Am I going to get a big publisher? Am I going to publish with the same small publisher that that was kind enough to publish this book and whom I you know I feel some loyalty to? Uh, how are the sales of the first book going to influence the, the next one? So I, I'd be surprised if it was out in 22, but I think 23 is very realistic. Wonderful. Um, well, before we move on from, from Mr. Wizard, and I, I can tell folks it is, uh, it, it's a quick read. You know, it's 200 pages. The, um, the chapters are, are fairly short. It's the type of book where, you know, I think sometimes – I know people who are like, oh, yeah, the short chapters, I just, you know, you kind of just keep reading because it's like, oh, well, the next one's only three or four pages or the next one, you know, it's uh, an hour later. It's like, oh, wow, I just read a lot. Uh, but no, I, I can uh, warm weather is coming. I, I picture this as take it to the beach. It's, it'd be a great beach read. Um, it's, it, it was just very enjoyable. So, um, is there anything else you want the folks, like I said, I, I don't want to get too much into the plot or, or give away some of the, right. the, the key things, but is there anything else you want people to know about, um, the, the book? Well, to me, it's funny and I hope, I hope it was funny to you. I tell people if they don't get at least three out loud laughs, I'll refund their money. Um, <laughs> You know, I laughed a lot in writing it because the characters, once they're once they're let loose, 
say things that you're like, they cracked me up along the way. I mean, I didn't know that they were coming. They came from me, and yet in some ways they didn't. And so especially with the kind of irreverent character that Spencer is, and he's a little cynical, and, um, you know, he just said some things that were very funny. And so while the subject of the book is serious, you know, DNA, who we are, where we're from, I mean, if, if, if you don't get a couple of laughs out of this, I did something wrong. No, I, I found it um, that there's a surface of lightheartedness and, and you can kind of imagine two brothers just constantly. It, it's, it's like a sibling rivalry, right? They, they're, they're taking quips at each other. They're, they're busting each other's balls, to, to use a crude uh, phrase. Um, but then, you know, time and again, you, you, there, there are those real kernels of connection and the, the deeper more impactful moments and, and questions. And yeah, it, it's just a very nice mix, I thought. Thank you. And that was my goal. I appreciate that. Yeah. Um, well, let's, let me, if, if you don't mind, I, I always love talking to folks who write because I'm, I'm fascinated by the process and, and how you got to be a writer. And so if you don't mind, I, I'd love to, to rewind almost. And I, I, when, did, when did writing, when did you know it was what you wanted to do? Yeah, that was very early on. I mean, I was probably 11 or 12. And the idea of being a writer was very attractive to me. And it's something that I never let go of. So all through school, um, and obviously early on when you're 11, you, you don't really know what kind of writer you want to be or what that entails. Um, so as I went through school, I wanted to be a fiction writer. And so that's what I studied in college. And then I went to a graduate program that supposedly taught fiction writing. Um, that could be a whole other conversation. Um, but when I got out of graduate school, ready to be a novelist, um, I, I had no skills on the business side. And so I had to figure out, okay, well, now I got rent to pay and I'd like to eat at least you know once or twice a day. So I need to make some money. And writing a novel at the age of 23 is not really the key to financial success. Um, I mean, for some very lucky, talented people it is. So I became a journalist out of self-defense. I still wanted to write. So I started writing for very small newspapers and magazines, doing little hundred or 200 word stories. And then I started to build a portfolio of those. And so the magazines got bigger and the stories themselves got bigger and a couple of years later, I had built to the point where I was writing, you know, major feature stories for lots and lots of different national magazines. And even though it wasn't what I set out to do, and I was writing fiction on the side, it turned out to be a, a great career. Very fun, very rewarding, challenging, um, not lucrative in the way that I had hoped. And, you know, I, I dealt with that a little bit later on in the career in other ways, but yeah, just a great opportunity. Like every week I went somewhere and either interviewed people or visited a place where I was learning something new all the time. And I got to write about it and people paid me for that. And it was just, uh, I was amazed at how lucky I was to have stumbled into it. If you don't want to go here, that's, that's certainly fine. But I, I'm curious, uh, your experience with a graduate writing program. Uh, do you need graduate programs to teach people how to write? I, I guess, is, is that the source of? Well, I can only speak to my own experience, which was not good. Okay. Um, I came out of that program and it was a program focused on the craft of writing. We learned nothing about how to get along in the world as a writer which would have been the stuff that was even more valuable. Now, I understand that that was the nature of this particular program and other programs are different, um, but it was a very difficult couple of years. It was a two-year program for me. I came out of it feeling like I really, um, I didn't learn much. I would have been better off going out in the world, getting a job, having more experiences, and maybe going back to a program later on. So I, I wouldn't say that, that the programs are not valuable. I would just say make sure they're valuable to you personally and also, I think, more valuable after you've uh, garnered some experience in the world so you might have something to write about 
as opposed to coming right out of college and going into another academic program when all of your life experience has basically been going to school. And there comes a point where that's not a very interesting subject anymore to readers because there's been so much written about it. Yeah. I guess for the, the very, very lucky few who, you know, have, have that first hit book deal in them. What, I mean, what are, what are the avenues for folks that come out of school and want to be writers? Is, is it, is it more so like, Hey, you just got to find any job to, to pay the bills and then just keep writing on the side. It's, it's such a different uh, environment now um, where anybody with a laptop uh, is suddenly a, a literary entrepreneur, right? So, I mean, there have been a lot of people who have been successful just writing blogs or um, putting stuff up on free online publications. Or, or, I mean, there are so many different ways to be a writer now compared to when I came up that I, I don't even know what they are. And, and for me, it was interesting because when I sold this novel to the publisher, to my publisher, Open Books, um, they told me, well, you know, we're going to need to have you be very active in all these social media channels. And I said, yeah, that's not really, not, it's not my thing. And they said, well, if you want us to publish your book, that's going to have to become your thing. Um, because that's, that's how people sell books these days. You know, Mr. Wizard is probably not in your local bookstore, which makes it a hard thing to sell to readers who go to bookstores to buy the books. But I've done so many programs like this that are great publicity and people will hear the book and maybe three people will go buy it and maybe 300 people will go buy it. And so, and I hope someone will read it and not lend it to their friend, but tell their friend that they should go buy their own copy. Um, so now I'm trying to remember how I got started and what the question was, because I feel I've gone a little sideways. No, no, I was just asking you, you know, I'm trying to picture somebody who's 22, 23 years old, fresh out of whether it be four or six years yeah. of, of school and writing, um, just just what those different avenues even would look like in, in terms of how do I go about my craft and pursuing my passion with mixing that with you know, I have to make some money. I, like you said, right. I, I have to eat. I, mean, I, I think the percentage of people who are so talented and so lucky that their career blossoms coming out of the gate are extremely rare. Um, but maybe you're one of those people, right? So I don't want to tell people that they shouldn't, uh, that they should give up their dream and, you know, go, go work at uh, Starbucks um, because there are some people who aren't going to need that. They're going to be, it's going to be a lightning strike for them. For other people, um, you start out with publications. You know, did you go to, did you go to college? Well, does your college have an alumni magazine? Do you live in a neighborhood that has a free publication that people pick up, you know, on the corner? Could you write for them? Um, you know, can you write an op-ed for your city newspaper? I mean, you look at all of the places that you see published material? Is there a website you love? Could you contact someone there and ask them if you could write a guest post? Um, you know, there are endless numbers of places now where you could be published and start to build a portfolio of, of work that has been seen. And so that in itself is a bit of a treasure hunt as well. And the problem is that these are all the things that you became a writer so you wouldn't have to do, right? You have to be an entrepreneur. You have to be a salesman. You have to manage your books. You have to do accounting. You know, you have to do all these things that people who want to be writers are like, oh, no, I, I want to be a writer so I never have to do any of that stuff. And then you realize, oh, geez, I got to go do this stuff anyway. <laughs> and the sales part of it now, a writer is, this, is the marketing director and the sales director of his own work. And that's hard. And that's where you end up spending a lot of your time doing that kind of work as opposed to writing. And I think a lot of people lose interest in the writing when they see how much other stuff they have to do that they didn't want to do. Yeah. So as, as you know, you looking back hypothetically, what, what advice would you give to 
And, and I know you have taught, I, I saw on your website, you have taught some writing, which I wanted to ask you about that as well. Yeah. Um, you know, what, what, what do you say to those students when they're, you know, hey, Mr. Walk, I, I really want to be a writer. I, you know, are, are there one or two nuggets above all else that it's like, well, here's what you need to know? Well, here's the thing. Um, I think you could, you could break up people who want to be writers into two categories. One category, which has a lot of people in it, are people who want to be writers, but they don't actually ever get around to writing anything. And there's nothing wrong with that. But um, if you really want to do this, you'll, you'll be sitting down and writing, and nobody has to tell you that because you're driven to do it. It's what you want to do. Um, it's, not a, it's not a practical thing to, to set a course uh, for a career in it. And so there's nothing wrong with giving it up and saying, I wasn't cut out for this. And I think a lot of people feel like once they decide they want to do it, they feel like, they really have to do it. And you don't, you don't, nobody has to ever write anything really. Um, and so if you're not doing it, maybe you weren't cut out for it. Mm -hmm. The people who do write and, you know, will write whether they're published or not. The advice I would give them is, you know, find these places where you could start to publish and spend some of your writing time trying to get your work out in the world. Because if that's what you're going to do with your career, um, that's an important skill because you're going to want to be published and you're going to want to be paid. And your work is not just miraculously going to be discovered and someone's going to go, oh, yeah, we're going to we want to publish this and we'll pay you this for it. Um, that's that's the hardest part of the career is finding ways that you can publish it and get paid for it. How often do you write? Is it every day? Um. So when I was a journalist, which, which I gave up about five years ago, yeah, I mean, it was, that was work. And I wrote, I wrote every day or I did some of the other work, whether it was bookkeeping or pitching story ideas and, and being on the phone or interviewing people. So those were all part of the writing career. And yeah, I mean, and for me, I mean, I, I did it seven days a week. There were not a lot of days off although there were plenty of perks when I got sent places. I mean, an average week I would work every single day. Mm -hmm. Now that I'm writing fiction, it's, it's a very different thing. If I can get in two or three hours, <clears throat> pardon me, in the morning, that's a pretty good day. Um, I find that there are periods in the book where I'm, I, I can't wait to, like I go to bed at night and I'm like, oh, I wish it was morning already so I could get up and start writing again. And that's a great feeling. And there are plenty of days like that. And then maybe I'll finish a chapter and, and I won't know exactly what's supposed to come next. And so two or three days may go by where I do some research or I read something about my characters or my locale or I watch some movies that are going to have some influence on knowing what to do next. And, you know, a couple of days may go by, a week may go by, and I may not write anything, but the process itself is, is kind of still happening behind the scenes for me. And the remarkable thing about these two novels is that they revealed themselves to me in their own time. And when I realized that it was okay to have a day or a week where I wasn't actually sitting down to write because I was waiting for the next, you know, it's like that. Um, it's like that video game where the, the blocks drop into place. Oh, sure. Tetris. And, uh, Tetris, I Tetris, believe. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And you're waiting for that next block <laughs> yeah. and you know where it goes and you just, you got, you, you can't put it there until it shows up. So there's some of that. And, uh, so writing every day, I don't think is a requirement, but obviously the more you do it, the better. And for me, writing for magazines for 35 years and newspapers was a great way to hone my craft that so that by, by the time I got to writing fiction, the thing I really wanted to do, the craft part was, was very much already settled. Mm -hmm. how, do, how do you deal with that? internal critic that voice in your head um is, is that something that you struggle with 
each time you write. Um, I, 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 I won't pretend that I've written a lot, but e- like even going back to school, right, and, and certain assignments and and things that you care about, putting words down on paper, I feel um, it's it's a struggle to find like my real voice, if you will, instead yeah. of feeling like I'm doing some impersonation or, or writing to because it's what I I think the reader wants to hear. I, I don't know if that makes sense, but but I just feel like this internal critic can sometimes be the, the harshest. And for me, like overcoming that has has it's difficult. And I'm just curious, I you must I, I'm guessing you must deal with that quite often maybe. I I think for me, that was something that was more prevalent when I was younger. Um, and many things in life were uncertain, maybe before I was married and had a, a life partner, before I knew that I was financially secure. Um, I think as you develop as a person, that voice becomes more obvious and and more reliable um but there are you know sometimes you write different pieces in different voices and um i I feel confident enough in my abilities that i i can write something and i can know oh this is total shite you know this is going to be like i i can't even revise this into anything worthwhile and that's okay there's nothing wrong with that not everything you do you know it's like a baseball player is not going to get a hit every time he's going to strike out you know 20 percent of the times he's at bat um and and that's okay and once you realize that and you can become comfortable with being unsuccessful in some of your work and know that eventually the stuff that is good is going to come out. And even that stuff, you know, you write it and you know, okay, I'm going to have to go back and revise this, but I got the basics down here. I can move on with the story and come back later and and fix the stuff that, that isn't quite polished enough. Um, But yeah, I mean, that's a good question. It's, you have to be a relentless critic of your own work. And, you know, I just had my writing group where we have about six of us uh, who get together once a month and and critique each other's work. And, you know, one of the women in the group said, I know there's some stuff in here that I really love that has to go. And I can't do it myself. I need someone to tell me that these phrases that I love, that I just feel like they're some of the best stuff I've done, but they don't serve the story. Someone's got to tell me which ones of these I got to get rid of because I can't do it myself. And that's hard. You know, you, you get attached to certain things that you've done, but you have to keep in mind what, what's the overall goal of the story. And is this service in service to that goal? And if it's not, you got to be a, a good enough critic to say, all right, you're out of here. Mm-hmm. I'm sure you've thought a lot about the craft of writing and how it compares to craft of, of playing golf. Is Do you, do you approach those things uh, similarly in your own life? What, how, how do you approach the game of golf? I love that you asked that because when I interview, like I, I, um, I did a program with Michael Murphy, uh, author of Golf in the Kingdom. Sure some months ago and we were on a panel together and I asked him that exact question. I said, you know, how, how is golf like writing? And he was, he was stumped for a moment and you, people can look this up on the, on the web uh, cause his ultimate answer was really good. But, you know, I, I, I think they do have a lot in common. I mean, they're, they're a craft and the beautiful thing is they're both things that you can continue to get better at even when you're old and cranky and stiff, um, you just have to find different ways to execute things that were easier when you were 20 and you could swing out of your shoes. Well, when you're 60 and you can't hit the ball that far anymore, you need to be clever and you need to manage your game in ways that um, your talents are brought, are brought out. And so it's different, I think, in different points in your life. But, you know, I've played a lot of sports. I still play soccer with a group of over 60 soccer players. You know, a lot of these sports we're we're not getting better at clearly. Um, You know, there's a steep decline in a lot of them, but golf is one that 
you can still get better at no matter how old you are. And that's what, what I love about it. And I think writing is the same way. You know, you put in the time, you look at the places where you can work on your game and you can still get better and better and better, even at, even as you age. And that's exciting. Yeah. It occurs to me just listening to, to you answer that. I mean, just the idea of that unattainable perfection, right? And yeah. I, I think that almost answers the, the question I had about, you know, that critic in your head. There's It's the same way in golf, right? Like rare is it for me where I'll play a round of golf and feel that, hey, everything's just coming together perfectly, right? I, I feel right. like that's that's probably the exact same uh, way that, that I feel writing. And, and I think the lesson for me would be, you know, well, Hey, you, you keep playing golf, right? You, you just work your way through it and, and find ways to manage your misses and, and make the best of it. And, and I guess that, you know, some of that wisdom can, can probably be taken uh, to writing as well. Yeah. Let me, let me add one more thing to that, which is, so anybody who's ever played golf with me, you know, has reached a point where they just had to look away. They couldn't even watch me anymore because uh, my swing is is so terrible. But I've learned how to make it work for me. So the thing about golf and writing that's similar. So, you know, you would get lessons on what what's good writing and how do you write well. And, you know, there'd be a lot of rules to follow. And a lot of those rules are extremely helpful to a lot of people and probably to everyone at some point. But then if you are confident enough in your own voice, I mean, my swing, nobody could ever teach it. Nobody would want to teach it. No, nobody should ever even have to look at it. But <laughs> I know how to keep doing the same terrible thing over and over to the point where I'm successful with it. Mm -hmm. And that's that's very similar to developing your own voice in print is, you know, have the confidence to know that this thing that maybe is breaking a lot of rules that you were taught is still working for you. And that's really, that's really what matters. Yeah. And, uh, you know, there's plenty of people I just read, uh, I just read Joseph Heller's catch 22 for the first time, which, you know, seems amazing. For the first time. Yeah, that is yeah. amazing. And I read that book and I was like, this book was written 50 or 60 years ago. It is unlike any book I have ever read, right? Like he just invented something so different from what anybody else had done before. And that's such a beautiful thing. You know, I read um, George Saunders's Lincoln in the Bardo, mm -hmm. which is a, a book that came out maybe two or three years ago. Again, you know, people have written literally millions of books. And this was unlike any book that had ever been written before. So just because people are telling you that you, you can't do something a certain way doesn't mean that you can't make that thing work. And my golf swing is the perfect example of that. Oh, just before I ask you my next question, that's so funny. Catch-22 uh, in high school, we our senior year, it, it always culminates with a, a, big, um, a big essay written uh, dissection of, of, a, of a book and catch 22 is what I picked. And, and I can point to that book specifically as the, the first book in my life that I truly, truly loved where it was like, Oh my God, this is, this is a good book. I mean, some laugh out loud, funny moments, some absurdity, Absolutely. uh, so just some cynicism, right. About, about yeah. the world and about institutions. Um, I, so I, I'm glad, I, I'm glad you got around to it. That, that book holds a special place for me. Yeah, I think that there's a book out there that speaks to you no matter whether you're, you know, African-American, Asian, you're an Eskimo, you're old, you're young, you're um, uh, otherwise abled, you're transgender. I mean, whatever it is, someone has written the book that's going to speak to you. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's the beauty of this. And, or maybe you're going to write the book that speaks to a certain population that could, could be everyone or could be very small. And, and that's great too. That's also about, you know, finding your own voice and staying true to it. I'm reading a book right now, um, by an African-American woman. It's a thriller. Um, and you know, the language is just, it's so different from anything that I would ever, uh, be familiar with because I, you know, I'm not 20 and African American and live in Brooklyn, but 
it's the language is so fresh and it's so exciting to read this book. Please don't ask me the name of it because I can't remember it. Her, the writer's name is Alyssa Cole. Um, and, you know, I'm just really enjoying this thing that even though I don't relate to it directly, the language is so original and, and it's done so well that it's it's just it's great fun. Yeah. Well, in that spirit, then, what are some of the books that that have spoken to you and, and hold that special place in in your heart? Yeah, that's that's such a hard question because I read <laughs> so much. I mean. Hemingway was a big influence on me early on just because of the, the, you know, the, the spareness of the prose. And there was a short story writer from Oregon back in the nineties, Raymond Carver, who was very popular. Um, his work was a big influence on me. I read a lot of the uh, Western writer, Jim Harrison. Um, he wrote uh, a novella that got turned into legends of the fall, which was a movie with Brad Pitt. The novella is one of my favorite things that I've ever read. Um, you know, I, I mean, it's not popular to say it these days, but I mean, my influences tend to be white men because I'm a white man. Mm -hmm. Not to say that I haven't read works by lots of other people who are very different from me that I've enjoyed. But, you know, those are those are, you tend to relate to books written by people who are like you. Mm -hmm. And so th those are a lot of my influences. And wh where do you, are, are you all over the board in terms of where you like to go and, and what you like to read currently uh, in, in between fiction, nonfiction, uh, you know, perhaps subject matter. Uh, do, do you draw inspiration from, from anywhere and, and anybody? I am all over the board. I mean, <laughs> I just finished reading a book about, uh, the Irish Republican Army in uh, Belfast in the 70s. Then I started this thriller by this African-American woman writer. Um, you know, I go to a bookstore. I may have one or two things that that I have in mind to buy. And then I just, and sometimes I find, like, we have Powell's Books here, one of the yes. largest and best bookstores in the world. Yep. I mean, I'll go in there for two or three hours, and I'll, I'll find a room that I didn't even know existed before. And suddenly I, I'm in a room with subject matter that, like, I didn't even know there were, there were sections for these things and I'll pull something off the shelf and add it to my big stack of books. I mean, right now I'm trying to read a lot of fiction just because I'm writing fiction and some of the books I'm reading have to do with Ireland because part of the book is set in Ireland and, you know, I need some historical context and just like hearing the way, let's say an Irish writer would write and the, the cadence, um, and the, the way they use language in another country is important to, to get the voice right. Mm -hmm. And one of the best compliments I had on Mr. Wizard when it was being reviewed was an, an Irish reviewer mentioned in his review that, that the voice of the Irish characters was really well done. And I was like, that's the biggest compliment that you could get. Cause the, the worst thing you want is to be speaking in someone else's voice and getting it wrong and people going, good God, that's bullshit. We don't sound like that. Mm -hmm. You know, and so for, for an Irishman to say that the, the Irish people sound really sounded Irish and he laughed and he got the humor, that, that was important to me. And, and part of that is reading Irish writers and reading about the place that you're writing about. Yeah. Speaking of nonfiction, you've written four nonfiction books and three of them have to do with golf. But it's the fourth that I wanted to ask you about, and the the name of the book is "What the River Says," and uh, it's it's a first person account of your time working as a river guide in Idaho. I'm just curious if you could, you know, speak about how that even came to be, and and a little bit about what your experience was like uh, doing that. I love that you've done your homework. I really appreciate that. Um, yeah, I mean, that was, so my first book was, was a sort of philosophical golf book that came out in 1996 with a big publisher and it, it did well, it still sells. Um, but I had been working as a, as an outdoor guide for years already. And I really wanted to write a book about rivers because I spent a lot of time on them. I love the outdoors. 
Um, I worked for a company called Northwest Dories that was bought by another company called Oars. And I worked for them for about 15 years as sort of a guest guide, like in the high season when they had more trips than guides Mm -hmm. and they would need someone to come in and just work for one or two weeks. So I didn't need a whole season of work, but every year I got say two or three trips. Um, and I wanted to write about that experience because it's, uh, it was very important to me and, you know, for a suburban kid from long Island to suddenly be a licensed river guide in Idaho, you know, was a big thing for me in terms of my personal development and who I saw myself as. And so that book was something I really wanted to write, even though my agent tried to talk me out of it. My agent was probably right. Um, but it's what I wanted to do at the time. And so I spent a, you know, I spent a summer researching it and working on the river. And then I spent, you know, the following year writing the book. Okay. All right. I, yeah, no, it, 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 I mean, it grabbed my eye as somebody, I, I don't fish. So it's, it's a totally foreign, foreign world to me. Um, but I, I, I just loved that, you know, Hey, golf, golf, golf. Oh, what's this? Uh, that's, that's very cool. Um, so. It was fun. And I've, I've got a short story that I just finished that I'm trying to find a, a home for that is that, that take that juxtaposes somebody working as a river guide and somebody studying for an MFA in fiction writing. Okay. And it's a very long story, but I, I, I think it's one of the best things I've ever written, but it's about 10,000 words, which is very long for a short story. Um, but you know, that's territory that I've gone back and revisited in many other ways. Um, in fact, in the sequel of Mr. Wizard, um, one of the brothers and his wife goes on a river trip in Idaho. Uh, and one of the chapters, uh, you know, takes advantage of some of those experiences and insights I had. So that stuff, you know, you have an experience, it can keep giving for the rest of your life. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I hope you don't mind. I also wanted to just ask you about, you've done a great number of, of journalism pieces and, and doing a little bit of research. One that stood out to me, I'm a big baseball fan and born and raised in Cincinnati. Uh, you wrote about Bud Harrelson, the, the New York Mets shortstop. And, uh, part of that was his infamous brawl with, with Pete Rose when, when Pete was playing for the Reds. Um, that was a very fun read for me. I'm, I'm curious if, if there are pieces that, you know, looking back through your career kind of stand out to you. There's a couple that would certainly be one of them. So that, that story came about because when I was 12 years old, I invited Bud Harrelson to my bar mitzvah (laughs) in New York because he was my hero. And I got a letter back from him. Uh, you know, just, and and that was like so powerful to me, you know, handwritten on like a piece of lined stationery, you know, torn out of a notebook. And then he, uh, and then he passed it around the dugout. And so the 1971 Mets, um, a lot of whom had been on the 1969 world series, Mets, were still on the team. And here was a collection of autographs of people like, you know, Gil Hodges, who was the the manager and, uh, who else was on that team? You know, Ken Boswell, Tom Seaver, Doug McGraw. I mean, people who were my heroes. And now I had this letter and like 40 years later, I found this letter and I remembered, you know, this whole incident. And then I thought to myself, what a strange choice of hero Bud Harrelson was for a kid, right? (laughs) You know, he was like, he was a tiny little scrawny guy who, who hit one home run in his whole career because he wasn't strong enough to hit it out of the park. Um, But he was a phenomenal infielder. He, you know, played on the all-star team at shortstop a few times and, you know, so the story was my kind of revisiting what was it about this guy that made him a hero to me back when I was 12. And, um, you know, through a, a very uh, concerted effort and, and lots of tenacity, I finally convinced an editor at the New York Times to publish the story. So that was really satisfying because it ran in New York where people knew who he was. Right. 
And uh, my favorite quote from him in the whole story was he talks about that fight with Pete Rose and he says, <laughs> yes, um, I punched Pete in the fist with my eye. <laughs> Yeah, I did. I, I knew you were going to say it. I was like, yeah, I hit him first with my eye. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that That's a good one. Well, sorry, not to, uh, are there any others along those lines where you look back and like, oh man, that, you know, they, they, they stand out for you? Yeah, there's probably, there's probably two others that I would mention. I did a cover story for Sierra magazine back in the nineties about a, an inflatable kayak trip I did on a river in Southern Utah which not very many people had floated before. Hmm. And that was their cover story. And that was, that was a big deal. It was a really fun story for me. And then to have, to have it on the cover of the magazine was, was big. I did another piece on golf for the, for the New York times where I was invited to travel with a group of uh, army vet army and, and other uh, armed forces veterans who had been injured in Iraq and Afghanistan. And these are, you know, serious injuries, not just the PTSD, but a lot of these individuals had lost arms or legs, um, you know, just really tough injuries to recover from. And what they had in common was that they had all used golf as part of their recovery. Mm-hmm. And i met, I was on a trip with them to Ireland where they had been hosted by somebody who started a tour company and his way of giving back was to give these uh, veterans a free trip. And he managed to get a lot of publicity for him and his company, which was great. And I was there. And so I wrote a story about that for, for the New York times as well. I spent an afternoon with, uh, with a veteran named Tim Lang and it happened to be, what they call their uh, alive day, which was the anniversary of the day that he was injured in Iraq um, when some of his comrades were killed. And so this is a very special day to veterans. And I happened to be with him at the old head golf course in Ireland on this day. And if you want to talk about a storm, um, I, I mean, it rained so hard that we nearly drove our golf cart off a cliff because we couldn't see the cliff three feet away. But all the other people who were on the golf course that day went inside because that was the sensible thing to do. And I was out there with Tim and this was a a very important day to him. And I said, dude, whatever you want to do, I'm, I'm doing what you want to do. And he said, I want to play. And so we played this round of golf on this day and it was, it was a very emotional day for him. And so a lot of that, you know, came through to me and I was very lucky to be with him on that day. And I wrote a story about it and about the type of person he was and how golf mattered so much in his life, uh, which he had been a, you know, a high school quarterback and a baseball player and, you know, a star in so many ways. And this injury took a lot of that away from him, but he discovered that golf was a sport that he would have looked on with derision earlier in his life. But now it was something he could do and it was something he could compete in against able-bodied people. And that became really important to him. And he became very, very good at it very quickly. Um, And it was just a beautiful story about the game and what the game can mean to people. That's fantastic. Um, I, sorry, where where was that published? If folks want to search that, that, yeah, uh, that was that also article. in the New York Times. Okay. I think the title was something like "Golf Saves a Marine." Okay, all right. I, I you know, I, I saw that title, but I <laughs> sheepishly I'll say I read the Bud Harrelson one just because it's you know yeah. I was oh baseball you know, um, but I, I need to check that one out. So um, no, I appreciate it, Jeff. I I've I've taken a lot of your time already. Um, where my last question, what what is the best place for you for folks who want to pick up Mr. Wizard? What what helps you the most? Um, is is there a certain website uh, if, if people are looking to get it? That's a very nice question to ask. So there's a link to my publisher's site on my own website, jeffwallach.com. Um, in in an industry where the writers get very little money out of this, I get a little more if people buy it directly from the publisher. But 
if that's difficult or, or you know, inconvenient, anybody could get it on Amazon.com. Uh, we're thrilled for anyone to buy the book anywhere. Make sure you buy a couple of copies and give them out to your friends.